Welcome to the now playing Halloween retrospective series. Only trying to give America a good show. Hosted by Stuart. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up. Arnie. I prayed that he would burn in hell, but in my heart I knew that hell would not have him. And Brock. One must remember not to be fooled by his calm, unassuming facade. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? Due to the current release of Rob Zombie's new Halloween movie, H2, we will be watching and reviewing all of the films in the Halloween series. These eyes will deceive you. A warning, these conversations will be spoiler-filled, and as the movies are R-rated, there may be some objectionable language. Every other word you say is either hell or shit or damn. Trick or treat, motherfucker! Today we're talking about Halloween, the 2007 Rob Zombie version. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stewart in L.A. Arnie in Haddonfield, Illinois, again. (laughs) So where last we left the series, it was in shambles. Rob Zombie has decided to, or was asked to, reimagine, retell, reboot the franchise. And Rob Zombie's a perfect choice for this because I think that it's obvious how much of an influence Halloween has had on him. In his one of his most successful songs, the remake of the disco hit Boogeyman, he uses endless samples from the original Halloween movie. So this was really almost a coming full circle. Quotes you mean or the music? He used quotes from the movie in his music. Okay. I don't think I've ever heard that song or his yeah, version either. of that song. Yeah, he did uh, a real hard rocking one and they keep using that line from the beginning Boogeyman, gonna get you, gonna get you, gonna get you. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. You know, it, and this is all part of a, a trend that's happening all over pop culture in the last five years. Let's go back to things that people love and reboot them, not just remake them, but try to find something new in the origins of it and make it a more realistic, exciting, contemporary version. This has been done well, I think, with James Bond, Casino Royale, Batman Begins. It has also been done incredibly poorly if you look at something like Hannibal Rising. Or Friday the 13th. Or Friday the 13th. Exactly. (laughs) So I, you know, for the most part, I'm against out and out remakes, but I do like the ideas of of reboots and reconceptualizing what people liked about it uh, in a new way. So I approached this Halloween with a very mixed feeling. It, It, in many ways, it wasn't something that I needed to see, but I was willing to grant Zombie a little bit extra because I thought that he would have an interesting perspective. He wasn't going to just rehash and and send out again what had already been done. To build on that thought, I completely agree that a remake is kind of unnecessary in any case. The most pointless ever being the Psycho remake with Vince exactly. Vaughn. Well, sure. There was no point to that. But yeah. when you are dealing with a franchise, what happens is you get so strained in your continuity or you become so disassociated with the modern audience where you either have to be true to what's coming 
come before, or you can take your greatest hits of and reevaluate it so that it can appeal to a modern audience while keeping what made it a classic alive. So after Halloween 6 and or 8, I think it's a perfect candidate for this kind of a reboot where you take all the parts that worked, but cut yourself off from all of the continuity nightmares and the actor squabbles over salaries and just start over and give it a chance to go good. I was very much looking forward to this when it came out. I saw it opening night in theaters and I just thought it was a perfect candidate to be brought into a modern era out of its 70s upbringing. And yet it starts in the 70s. We start with Michael Myers as a boy talking. (laughs) We see his home life. We see him getting trouble in school and all that. 1981, just to be technical. Certainly has a 70s vibe to it. It's, it's, It's people in 1981 still living like it's 1978. I see. I didn't catch that. He was intentionally vague. He never stated the year that I could tell. Yeah, no, I they stay here. They, they, stay they here. do they because yeah, in the making of, I watched a four and a half hour making of this movie. Four and a half hours, I'll never get back. And <laughs> he was talking about how he wanted it to be timeless and not really evoke anything. But by the same token, when you listen to the music they're listening to, "Kiss is God of Thunder" and "Don't Fear the Reaper" and "Love Hurts," that you know, it, it just and the hairstyles, it just all screams seventies. The mutton chops. There's an intertitle that says 1981. It's you saw the rated version, didn't you? Was there was there a rape scene? No. You saw the rated version. We saw the unrated version, which has different titles. They removed 1981. It just says October 31st in Haddonfield, Illinois. Oh, this will be fun discussion. Then. Yes, Interesting. Yes. Okay. Mm. There's only a couple major differences. There's a lot of minor differences. The biggest major differences are they changed some titles, including that one, and they completely changed how Mike. Myers escapes from the sanitarium, which we will get to. Oh, good. Okay. Uh, All right. I didn't know that. Yeah, I must have seen a rated version, but I did watch deleted scenes. So, but in none of that, there was a rape scene. So when we get to that, I'm, I'm curious to know where that would have happened. Okay. Let's start at the top of the movie. So we see Michael at home with his mom and his stepfather and <laughs> bad family dynamic. Let's just put it that way. Well, let me just put it out there. Again, Haddonfield, Illinois is supposed to be middle America, right? It's supposed to be where Stuart and I grew up, right? We did not grow up in this white trash meth lab environment. <laughs> <laughs> what is with all the hillbillies? You know you're a yes. redneck if you're in a Rob Zombie movie? I mean, what is this? I don't understand what... William Forsythe, man, he went to town. This guy went all out with this, but I just didn't understand what I was watching and why. And I, I mean, how many F-bombs were in the first five minutes? I could not believe that. I mean, I wasn't put off by it, but I just didn't understand why it was going there. It was such an unhappy family environment. Sure, the guy's a mass murderer. Okay, but I just found that, like, right off the bat, we knew exactly, like, we got thrown into this, and I found that an incredible statement. Well, his mom's a stripper. His dad is gone. And there's just this deadbeat, crippled guy living in the house. His sister's a mean slut. I mean, it is uh, the worst possible family environment. And doesn't that make it almost too easy to make him a serial killer? Isn't it (laughs) creepier if he's me and he grows up in a normal looking home rather than, oh, yeah, his mom's the town slut who works at the strip club? You've just hit at my major point and my major feeling about the whole reboot in general is that they're trying to go back and tell us why Michael is the way he is. I think that's a false premise. I always preferred the original's take that we'd know nothing about him, that he's ambiguous. But if we're to go back and try to understand him as a real human being, that he's real, he's not this superhuman monster, and really understand him... 
I'm not sure that all the excuses that they give for why he is the way he is really work. I mean, there's a lot of people that come out of poverty. There's a lot of people that come out of sexually and emotionally abusive family environments and don't go this route. This feels like zombies fetish. This feels like he can't be happy unless there aren't white trash depravity. And this opening scenes are so depraved. I really can't emphasize that enough. How overwhelming it feels to watch these scenes. I was just like, oh my God, I can't take it. It's not fear he's inducing, it's nausea. I thought it was light on fear and and scary. It is. And he didn't evoke that at all for me. And these opening scenes with the boy, I did find interesting to a point, but I got the point earlier than the movie wanted me to, I guess. I didn't need as much as this as Zami did. But, you know, you guys have gone back and looked at the rest of his work, and and I didn't participate in that environment. Just to tag in there, I really do think the man has some talent. Uh, He's kind of, to me, very much like Tarantino. He's very good at evoking what has already been done in horror. He has good taste. He has a good aesthetic, but he's too much. He just keeps putting more and more and more and more on where I would need, you know, from Tarantino, three good lines. Tarantino would write three pages. I said a very similar thing in, on the other podcast. Rob Zombie goes too far. Yes. And, and we'll talk about it, I guess, throughout today's podcast. But I had the exact same thing. So I really feel like when I'm watching these intro scenes, On one hand, I love what he's doing. I love the look of it. I love the feel that he's getting at. But I do not want to spend as much time as we do in this household. But I'm going to grant it to him because he's trying to tell me why Michael went the way that he did. And I'm actually glad that he took the route of, you know, when you're approaching the remake, he almost has two movies here. One hour of which is a remake of John Carpenter's Halloween. But the first hour is basically a prequel to Halloween. I agree. And I feel like that was the movie he was much more into. I feel like if he could have gotten away with selling a movie that was just this part and never gotten to Laurie Strode, he would have been fine with it. I believe that's true from what I've seen in the interviews. And I think that this part of the movie really, really works. I think that the kid they cast is just hellaciously creepy in some of his facial expressions. He's awesome. I mean, yeah, Yeah. you could not have gotten better. I think that the family, well, I don't necessarily agree that white trash is the way to go for Haddonfield, where supposedly this later on is a nice suburb. Usually things go the other way. Things go downhill (laughs) in neighborhoods, not uphill. So I I don't think that, I don't know how on a stripper's salary alone they could afford that house in that neighborhood and all of that, but I think that the casting was well done. I think William Forsythe, yeah, he he was over the top and he was great, but sadly, I've met people like him in this area. You know, there's just really these gross nasty people in Illinois and not usually in the <laughs> suburbs but <laughs> you know I and I think yeah, that there goes your job as a real estate agent <laughs> I love these scenes and I love the school scenes too with the bully and everything although he is one researched bully if he's take, taking clippings from the newspaper thinking I'm going to use this against Mikey tomorrow you know, he's doing his homework well, on the bullying but well, he has a newspaper clipping of with a picture of Michael Myers' mom, you know, come see me at this strip joint. Oh, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yes. And, and well, Arnie, I, I would, <laughs> the only thing I have to that is, it's not the first time that Michael's been bullied by these two kids. So this kid happened to come across this and cut it out because he knows he's going to bully Michael later. Yeah, but that, that's, ho- that's bully homework, you know? No, no bully does homework. 
<laughs> I wouldn't also rule out the fact that he was cutting out because he thought the mom was hot. That is very true. Very true. That is true, too. And, you know, <laughs> I, I'm going to combat something real quick on you just said about well-acted scenes. I thought Sherry Moon did okay in certain parts, but I thought she uh, she underdid it. I, I didn't really buy it, the whole movie, that she was in it. I didn't like her in this movie. I'll be honest there. I don't think she did it. She was cast for obvious reasons, and that's fine. And She's sleeping with the director, you know. Yeah, okay, let's call it out. I mean, David Mamet uses Rebecca Pigeon in all his movies, and the movies are still good regardless of her bad performances in them. But here, she just couldn't handle the material that was given to her or something. Because, for example, they show her dancing at the strip club at night, uh, the night of the murders. Now, Mm -hmm. A, you don't need those scenes at all. We know she's at the strip club. It's completely superfluous. And B, there's no nudity. We don't see her nude. See, that's her, that's her Oscar clip. <laughs> I think it's especially hypocritical that the one person, the only female in the whole movie who doesn't show her tits is Zombie's wife. I mean, seriously, every other woman. And she plays a stripper. Yeah, the stripper. That is the stripper. If it had been any other actress, you know, Rob Zombie would have been like, you're taking your top off or you're not getting the part. But it, it did yeah. seem very hypocritical to me that every woman but the stripper is topless in this movie. I'm going to just chime in and agree with you guys. I think. Sherry Moon is miscast. It's not even that she gives a bad performance, and she does. It's that she's yeah. never going to be able to give what this role is requiring, which is empathy. She's actually a good mother who's just in an unfortunate circumstance and trying to raise her kid, doing the only thing she knows how to do. She's supposed to be sympathetic. That sympathy does not come through. You needed someone else in that role. She's just wrong. She shouldn't have had the part. I don't understand why the character would stay with that husband because no, they don't they no. don't give you a reason for her to stick around she or make be on her own. Out. Exactly. The idea that she would allow that in her house. Not that obviously there aren't many abusive relationships like that, but I didn't buy into it. It felt like five different non-cohesive explanations as to why Michael Myers became a sociopathic killer. And the other thing is, I think that the scenes they left in the movie, she was fine in them, not great, but fine. But I watched some of the deleted scenes with her and she she is awful in them and yes, really, correct. really bad. Just can't even give a line reading. Yeah, and that's why they're deleted. <laughs> that is why they're deleted. <laughs> they're not deleted because they wouldn't have been helpful. I think they would have been helpful. It's that they just clunk. They just hit the ground clunking. They don't. I mean, you don't put Sherry Moon Zombie, who is very attractive, but not the greatest thespian in the world, in a scene with Malcolm no. McDowell, who I think is. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and those were all the scenes where Malcolm McDowell eating the scenery and Sherry Moon Zombie going, not an actress. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? You mentioned the, the kid. I do want to say I think he's really well cast. You know, we've seen a lot of killer kid movies lately, too. I mean, they remade The Omen. That was bad. There's been a lot of, you know, child actors trying to play demonic. And this one nails it. He really has a look and a presence that is sometimes hard to get from kids. You get the sense that he actually understood what was going on in the script and could, and played it. You know, sometimes they trick kids like the kids yeah. are acting and they don't know what they're really acting in. I think the kid knew. Oh yeah. Exactly how he oh, yeah. because it's a performance. I mean, he literally goes from eating candy corn and enjoying trick-or-treating. You know, the whole thing about him being denied this very trick-or-treating thing is what spurns his attack on his sister. And you see a character who can still be childish, who can still be like, I want to go trick-or-treating and eat candy. And then like that, turn and, and be like, and now I'm going to kill you 
unemotively and unsympathetically. And that's right after he killed the school bully. Yeah, the killing of the bully scene is a is a tough scene. That is one of the tough scenes in the movie. There's there's two that really stand out, and that's one of them. And it plays so well with the idea of we really hate this bully. I mean, everything out of his mouth is vitriol and hate, and we want to see him go down. But once Michael is unleashed, we want him to stop, and we really empathize with this bully, and we really don't want him to kill him. It may hurt my perspective a little bit that the bully is the kid who I really enjoyed seeing in the three Spy Kids movies. And so I'm seeing the Spy Kid just get the living shit beat out of him with a stick. And I'm like, oh my god! <laughs> my problem with the bully scene is he murders the kid in the in the woods and he hits him and he hits him and he gets him and he gets him down and then they have a shot of him raising a stick up and whacking coming down to whack the kid and then there's like two or three more shots of cutting to the kid on the ground bleeding and dying when yeah. it would have been just as effective if not I think arguably much more effective actually if you show him go in for the kill you hear the crack and then you go on to the next scene well I'll tell you what zombie was doing there is he was intercutting the kid dying with the spinning of the trees giving you the perspective of the victim you were seeing his yes. last scene and his last views of the spinning trees and trying to connect more with the victim thus making it more sympathetic I didn't get that because what I got was this is brutal and it keeps going and going and going and it didn't work for me okay I got the point he's killing the kid and the kid's dying and then he kept on going and then he finally got away from it and went on to the next scene well let me step out of this just for a second this is the second time that I watched the movie I first saw it uh, my mom was coming to visit me and I think I mentioned in the very first Halloween podcast <laughs> that we had this funny story in our, our family about how she got the living shit scared out of her watching Halloween and woke us all up in the middle of the night and said there's a killer in the house because she had accidentally unplugged the lamp and so we were like, ha ha, it's this thing, we enjoy it. And so when this came out, we went to the drive-in and we're like, oh, let's just watch this. This was the first of two movies and we, we saw it. I was actually, as this was happening, my concern went immediately to my mother being like, this is, I can handle this, but I don't want my mother to be, my, my 65-year-old mother to be watching a small child being beat to death. And then I look over at the car next to me and there's a couple with a four-year-old child and they're watching this. And I know oh. I was a kid. I watched horror movies and I loved it but I liked the kind of horror that still protected the audience and this is an unrelenting movie and it really is only meant for people that really have the maturity to go there and come back like I don't think old people and children should see this Halloween well I perhaps agree with you on old people but I think that horror has evolved and the gore factor is up there and what we saw and that now view as safe horror as a kid you know when i was seven and saw jason's mother decapitated in friday the 13th part one i was fucked in the head i it messed me up for years right now i watch it and i laugh now i think that any kid seven years old who sees jason Voorhees' mom decapitated from 1980 laughs because it looks so fake compared to the sophistication the kids have today why wouldn't they have the same response as you because they are a more sophisticated audience, more no. into what's happening. They're more sophisticated because at four, their parents took them to the drive-in to watch <laughs> saw this. this movie. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. I feel like, not that I'm getting on, on age-appropriate horror movies, but I really feel like this has a level of brutality 
uh, I agree with you. That goes beyond the horror movies that I saw at a young, impressionable age. And if I saw this level of brutality at that age, I don't know that I would have liked horror movies. I, I think that this is what kids who were our age, which is early teens, when we got into horror, what they expect today is this. They are watching Saw. I agree. Us. A- absolutely. Yeah. Arnie, there's a difference there between the early teenagers watching this movie and what they expect. And then what you're saying is your first time you watched the Friday the 13th was you were seven, right? Yeah. So mm-hmm. when you're still little, little, I do agree with Stuart that you would, that seven-year-old might have the same reaction to a Friday the 13th movie because he doesn't know the difference yet. But a teenager mm-hmm. who's watching this movie sh- hopefully does, especially with you know all the other stuff around today that is similar or has taken the next steps in the maturity you're talking about. But a seven-year-old kid was, should have the same reaction action hopefully that you did because why wouldn't they unless they're exposed to things on a much earlier age and then that's just a parenting thing then i don't want to get into this conversation right now right, because right. it gets off topic. but i just think that this level of brutality is you're you're making this for a current audience and you can't use 80s gore to when you're trying to modernize you've got to use 21st century gore and saw and hostile have upped the game and rob zombies just seeing it tit for tat you okay. can do it and it has been done but you're right commercial it didn't work. It was called Grindhouse, and they tried to recreate that look. Zombie participated in that, in fact. And I like that movie. It would have been a way to go with this series, but what Zombie has announced here, we're watching kids do this level of brutality with this level of intensity, is that he wants to get at the root of the evil. All the things that Pleasance talked about and implied with he's evil, the dark evil, evil, evil. We don't need Donald Pleasant's character, Sam Loomis, saying all that in this movie because we are watching it. And I mean, you get it from the scene of the bully. I don't need another scene of somebody telling me how awful and antisocial and heartless Michael is. I've seen it. I got it. And you got it with the rat. And what freaks me out is I actually just read a news article two months ago about a kid in Ohio who killed like 14 cats in his neighborhood and all i could think of was this movie when i read that article it's like i'm glad they're locking this kid up because people are next because that is a that is a true thing i i've studied serial killers i was fascinated by them in high school ed gein and all that they start with animals they practice on defenseless animals and move to people that is a real fact and it's something that zombie did here it's not original because it's a very well-known fact but it was something that drove home a little bit more reality to it is he starts on his pets and the neighbor's pets and then when he feels practiced enough he moves on to the people and it adds to the creep factor he not only killed his sister he killed his stepfather he killed the sister's boyfriend because in the first Halloween movie he let the sister's boyfriend go but he lets the baby live what I like and about his mother scene, and it was mother wasn't home right. right he was out right so I don't um, know that he would have killed her if she had been but probably yeah. not probably not right yeah. he killed the people who were mean to him if you look at it right. every single person he killed picked on him he had a motive for all of those which comes into play later as for yes. the baby the baby of course couldn't be mean because it's a baby it can't speak yet but I think there's something else going on there, and I'm really looking forward to Halloween 2 because it, it's brought back up later in the movie, and you still don't know what Michael's trying to do. Well, well yes. I have some uh, theories, well, but we'll get there. What I loved is that he found the oversized mask, and when he walks out in the hallway following his sister when she's trying to get away from him, and he has this little body with this giant head, I thought that was a really funny and creepy image at the same time. It's sort of like, don't worry, buddy, you'll grow into it, you know? And it was just a big, big head on a small little body. But that's probably one of the only things I found creepy about the entire scene was the big head on the small body. And I hate to ruin it for you, but that image is a direct lift. 
I have a recommendation for you. If you ever want to see the scariest horror music video, and I apologize to Michael Jackson, it is Aphex Twin, Come to Daddy. I'm going to say no more about it. Go watch that, and you'll know where Zombie got that mask on the little body. Okay. I do have to say that, you know, I I never really have noticed a whole lot of differences in the masks from movie to movie. I know there's websites dedicated to just analyzing all of the slight differences in the masks from all the movies. We talked about how we didn't like the eyes in H2O, perhaps. But here, this mask is more refined. It's more menacing looking with its lines mm-hmm. and its angles. And I think that this is a great evolution of the mask, again, for the 21st century to bring with it a sense of danger. It doesn't have the complete blankness of the original Shatner mask. But Correct. it is a wonderful, menacing mask. And I and I think it worked really well when it, the kid put it on. Yeah, some of the older masks made me think there was nothing there. You had no read on it. When you looked at it, you were like, I don't know. He could be any, whoever's underneath could be happy, sad, frustrated. I wouldn't know. When you look at that mask at any time, it looks angry. Right. And when the, when a child puts it on, it's, it, it, there is something very evocative about that image. I, it was I effective. Think. Yeah. You know, I would like to give small compliments to the sister and something that happened when I watched this, even the second time. I wasn't sure if the same actress that played Lori later was also this. And I think that would have been a brilliant directorial choice if they had done that. I had the same kind of question because they really look and act alike. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that is – I really wish it had been the same actress because there's so much symmetry to the first half of the movie and the second half of the movie. It would have been really interesting to see an actress play slut and good girl. Although she we'll, – we'll get to it. But Laurie is nowhere near as good in this movie as the original. Nowhere. Of course. They've made, they've made some choices. They've tried not to make her the virgin and terror um, that Jamie Lee Curtis was, but she's still a good kid. And uh, I, I would have enjoyed that, exploring that a little different. That said, I thought the actress that played Judith was, was uh, really good. And even though she had made offhanded comments to Michael, she's the first person killed that you feel like, wow, she didn't deserve that. You know, I'm okay with the evil stepdad getting it, getting taped up in throat, even though it's horrific. Obviously, I'm affected by the death scene of the bully, but at least he was a horrible, horrible person. But she and her boyfriend, they were self-involved and they weren't trying to parent Michael, but they certainly weren't cruel to him in the way that the other characters were. I think she was the way the breakfast scene talking about him masturbating his rat and she is downright cruel during that breakfast scene. She's a bitch. She really. All right. I didn't have that response at all. I felt like she was a pretty good girl. (laughs) Oh, I felt like she was so deserving. She was as deserving as the father. The boyfriend perhaps didn't deserve it as much. I think out of any of them, the boyfriend who lived in the first movie originally in the 70s, he was the one this time who was just in the wrong place place at the wrong time but the sister was nothing but a bitch but to michael i think that comes through that this is a long-standing antagonistic relationship she slaps him when he walks into her room you know going what the fuck are you doing she hits him she's a total bitch Uh, You know, to me, that was just like watching kids fight. It's how these are kids growing up in incredibly awful circumstances. She's adapted the best she can. He's adapted the best he can. And they don't get along. That made sense to me. I don't blame her for that. She's as much a victim as Michael, in my impression. So I didn't want I wasn't rooting for her death. And I did feel her her death and the boyfriend's death were upsetting in a different way than the other deaths. Why did he use Love Hurts? I just kind of thought that it was, you know, going back 
to the whole stereotype of if you have sex in a horror movie, it kills you. Sex, love, love hurts. <laughs> That's what I oh, was reading and, it. I mean, and it could be it could be more paternal love. I mean, at that point, he is on the cusp of being sexual. We get the sense that he is entering puberty and he is starting to have feelings about his sister. He's, mm-hmm. you know, certainly okay. about the way that he comes in when having sex. But I didn't get it so much as a fact of that kind of rejection as much as that, you know, he had been denied taking tr- – he had been neglected. Right. He was sitting alone on Halloween, a day that he would like to be with his family celebrating and um, he's eating candy alone with no kids, no friends, no family. His mom's stripping. It is a good stripper song. It, it was just a – it was a choice that announced itself Rob Zombie is behind this movie. And I had that many times of just like, oh, this is zombie going all out and, and being a part of it, like stepping out from behind the camera and saying, I'm here. <laughs> and I, when first watching this, I was thinking, you know, in the original, Michael only killed his sister. And it makes a lot more sense that the fame these days would go to a kid who goes on a killing spree versus a kid who just kills his sister. Because come on, we've got teenage boys going into schools and killing 10 people in a day anymore. So I think that the body count had to be upped for the modern era because a kid who just kills his sister is no longer a threat. He's a common hood. Yeah, that's a sad. sad. Yeah, (laughs) but Uh, you you get my point, right? I mean, a kid who kills his sister is not going to be believable as somebody who you write a book about anymore. Not after Columbine. It changed the game. Right. You're not going to write a book called The Devil's Eyes and compare him to the devil. <laughs> I agree. And I don't think any therapist should compare a psychologically damaged <laughs> person to the devil. But, you know, I didn't read the book. Especially his own patient. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, Malcolm McDowell, let's talk about him. He is great. He is wonderful. I don't think there could be a better Sam Loomis than Malcolm McDowell. And that includes Donald Pleasance. I agree. He has the hip cool and the danger and the obsessiveness. He is everything you want in a Sam Loomis. And the moment I knew he was cast as Loomis was the moment I got excited to see this movie for the first time. And he did not disappoint. I, I want to say that in the first part of the movie, the first hour when we see him with Michael in the sanitarium, I thought he was fantastic. And I loved how he interacted with the boy. And you could really get the point that this doctor is working with this kid. And then the second half of the movie, when he's an old man, I actually got the age difference. Like, not only the wigs and the dyed hair, dyed beard helped that, but the, the character aged, not only in physical form, but the way he saw the world and how he's different, how he saw Michael. Like, he clearly was cashing in, all that kind of stuff, and that was an interesting plot point. So I really thought he developed a great character. The second half of the movie, I didn't like Sam Loomis as much as I liked him in the first half of the movie, though. I didn't really think I needed a lot of Sam Loomis in the second half, or maybe I needed more. I can't can't really figure that out. But I do know that I didn't like the character as much in the second half, but I thought the first half, he was phenomenal. What I've been saying from podcast one, and that is Sam Loomis is a cool character, but they've never known what to do with them. He has something to do in the first half of the movie. We're forging that relationship between him and the child, and it's fascinating to watch. Once it's removed from the context of the institution, and it's just Sam Loomis wandering around Haddonfield trying to find Michael, again, I'm left with like, what are you doing in this movie? There's nothing for you to do except show up at the very end and help 
Laurie protect herself. But for the first half of the movie, for sure, McDowell brings this game and he's the best thing about it. He's what we need because there's so much depravity. There's so many characters that we just sicken us and revolt us that to finally see someone who's noble, who's trying to reach out to this damaged child, who's trying to fix a very, very bad situation. We instantly connect to him. And I would have liked to have had more scenes with him in the institution. I actually do blame Cherry Moon's bad performance for why they ended up on the cutting room floor. The other thing is he's funny. I mean, he's writing that book and he can come across as so insightful into the mind of Michael Myers when he's giving that great speech with the big projected boy Michael behind him. But by the same token, he also gets some great lines both in the sanitarium and when he's with Sid Haig in the cemetery and he <laughs> Sid Haig's talking about uh, the book he wrote and doesn't know that it's Loomis he's talking to and his response is, I read that book. It was a masterpiece. I mean, it's just great. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> I like that scene too. Anyway. So then we have the scenes in the sanitarium. I have to ask, do they still have sanitariums or have they renamed them all to like rest institutions and mental institutions? Or rehab. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the trendy thing in LA is that, yeah, people get exhaustion and have rehab. Uh, they don't have mental breakdowns. <laughs> we fast forward 15 years later, and Michael is now a big motherfucker. He is huge. Six foot eight, Tyler Maine is, and weighed 350 at his peak wrestling weight. That is one big guy. I thought that was a really interesting choice to make him so big because I hadn't seen the movie before. So it's my first watch. And at the end of the first movie, Halloween, with John, John Carpenter's, he takes six shots and falls out the window and walks away, right? So I was thinking, maybe they're using him this big so he can take a lot of abuse. <laughs> you know, that's what I was thinking they were, that choice was. But beyond that, holy cow, he turned into Cousin Oliver from the Brady Bunch into this gigantic hulk of a man. And I'm like, holy cow, what are they feeding this guy at this place? <laughs> because this guy grew up big. And I thought it was really a good choice to have Michael Myers be such a big guy. Very yeah. good choice. It was an interesting choice. I'm still processing it, honest to God. I don't know whether it was the right choice or not. Would it be more scary to have him look average or slight? Uh, I don't know. I mean, you could have played it any different way. By making him that big, you've obviously made him instantly fearful and imposing. But logically, I'm not sure that the, the frame on that kid, well, he okay. would sprout up <laughs> in that way. But And he never works out in the movie either. I, I don't even know that he has access to it. So it's sort of just a conceit we have to give it that the evil in him makes him so massive. <laughs> I was actually really opposed to the casting choice initially because the guy who did this is Tyler Maine, professional wrestler, who I only know because he was Sabretooth in the first X-Men movie. Oh, yeah. And I hate him oh. in that movie because they took that entire movie and filled it with Ray Park and Taylor Maine, these people who just can't freaking act. And so I heard Taylor Maine did this. I'm like, God, he ruined X-Men. Why is he in this movie? He's going to ruin Halloween. But he is imposing. And fortunately, all he has to act is just, you know, look menacing. And all he has to do is stand there to do that so i think it was worked well yeah it was body language it wasn't really facial either because he was wearing masks all the mm -hmm. time so it wasn't like he had to evoke a lot of th any sort of thing on his face he didn't speak he just had to move menacingly and have an imposing figure it worked. So we're in the sanitarium and Danny Trejo, woohoo! Uh, he's back. So um, is everybody from the previous <laughs> movies, aren't they? We got well, Sherry yes. Moon Zombie, Danny <laughs> Trejo, and then Brock, you didn't see it, but Stuart did. We had Bill Mosley and also, what's her name from 
um, who played Mother Firefly in Devil's Rejects. Right. Oh, Leslie Easterbrook. Leslie Easterbrook is in this movie because what Stewart saw was they're doing a prisoner transfer of Michael Myers. It's four security guards, including those two, and another House of a Thousand Corpses one. The cop who got killed in House of a Thousand Corpses returned as a ghost in Devil's Rejects. He was one right. of the security guards moving Michael. And Michael oh. just breaks out of his chains and kills four security guards and then lets the inmates loose and escapes. What Brock and I saw was that new orderly, the one who talks shit to Danny Trejo, brings in his redneck cousin so the two of them can rape a new female inmate. And then they decide to rape her in Michael Myers' room just because Mike's a dumb mute. They go in there, they start wearing his masks and raping the girl in front of him. And Michael Myers steps up, kills the two rapists, and then launches his escape. Ah, yeah. And that is a brutal rape scene. So it's almost more justified that he breaks out and explains why now he's going to, after being there however many years, 16, 15 years, he's going to now. But Stuart, not only does the doors open for him to walk out, he also, doesn't he kill everyone in the sanitarium on his way out too? Yeah. He just starts, we don't see a lot of the deaths, we see the carnage, but the rape scene was certainly a hardcore rape scene, I would say. It's, um, you don't see penetration clearly, but you do see them raping her. You know, and it took. I mean, we didn't need that to know we hated that one character. It is weird in my cut that they introduce a character so loathsome and then he's never seen again. So it it at least explains to me why he was there. Well, you know, Stuart, if you have a character that loathsome as you saw that scene, you had him that bad. You didn't really need the justification for Michael to kill him by raping the girl. You already didn't like him because he was Michael already didn't like him because he was taunting him. So is it a weak justification to kill somebody? Well, not in a horror movie, it's not. But the rape scene again, you know, there you go again it's a choice that he went very far with now it was at least they had the sense to know to cut it out because it sounds to me like it was way more than necessary it was and what's funny is i watched both last night i had to go to youtube to see the uncut one or the cut one that you saw Stuart, because it's not even a special feature on my disc and yeah. it, your scene is more action-packed mike myers is using the chain as a weapon that has bound him and he kills four guards and it's unexpected it's action-packed and just a kick-ass scene and it's scary because it's out of nowhere. This rape, like mm-hmm. you say, it justifies everything. It has a lower body count. Not that this movie has a high enough body count to here or there isn't going to matter. But it just, it seemed so much more contrived that they would rape a woman in Mike Myers' room and thus deserve what they got. Whereas these guards, you know, they're one of the lines that they say is, they tell us to move the meat, we move the meat. They're just doing their job. They're not doing anything right or wrong. And Mike Myers just chooses this moment to snap and kill them. Yeah, that scene felt random, but it moves into the scene that I'd really like to talk about, and I hope that it's in your your cut as well, and that is his the fruition of his relationship with the janitor Ishmael, uh, Danny Trejo. To me, that, along with the bully scene, really let you know more than any other talk that had been given how bad Michael was. Because here was a guy who plays a paternal figure, the first paternal figure in Michael's life other than Loomis, nurturing him, allowing him to collect these masks is really good to him. And Michael's entire response is, you must die. And he's begging for his life, crying. It's, it's, it's a scene you really hate to see, but it really lets you know this is what evil is. And 
I think that's all that she needed. I think that's all yeah. that she needed was was the bully scene and this scene to know how bad Michael Myers was. And when I first saw this movie, I thought Trejo was going to get off because he was nice to Michael. And, you know, exactly. that's how the horror movies kind of go. You know, the one guy who is nice to him. He would be the witness. He would see everyone else murdered and be able to tell Loomis what happened and right. this and that or whatever. Yeah. So when Danny Trejo was killed, I was like, you know, because up until this point, especially in our cut, Every single person Michael killed was mean to him. Even the nurse he kills right before Sherry Moon kills herself, right? You know, was mean to him because she goes, "Cute baby can't be related to you." You know, just an offhanded comment, but a mean spirited one. Danny Trejo was never mean to Michael that we can see. Fifteen years, and Michael still kills him like anything. You know, mm-hmm. no, not only anything. The cut I saw, and I'm not sure how it was edited for Stewarts, is that they you show him dunked in the water, the blood coming out. They show him come out of the water, different cut. You go back in the water. You go to the back in the water. I think three times you didn't need to do that you got the point how brutal this was <laughs> yeah. he kept on doing it so the same thing with the rape scene with those guys we already got those guys were bad so when michael should kill them he doesn't need the rape to justify it he already has reason to kill them because he's michael myers he already has that rage to them when he kills danny trejo i was surprised that he did it at all but the fact that he was killing him brutally was as you said show the evil but you didn't have to show it that graphically as a choice because we already got the point and again but you have to when you're robbing zombie because rob zombie my point. has he no impulse control he has no right. impulse control why do something you know once when you can do it five times well here's my thing though is i don't think you would i don't think that it is as gruesome if you only see him dunked once i think by the repeated dunkings it drives home more how evil it is and makes it feel less like a safe horror movie i think okay. that it really you know you feel more for danny trejo because you see him spitting up blood three times than you do if you see him spitting up blood once and Arnie, i agree with you but i'm gonna i'm gonna ask you to go further with this which is that okay we no longer have a horror movie that's enjoyable to watch it's not fun to watch the killings we feel bad we feel the killings it's upsetting it's vile and we are we are asked to look at evil in a way that is unglamorized do you feel like this movie really exposes that or is worth that journey i don't think i had that journey i just i saw unglamorized evil and and it was a horror film and therefore I was going with it and I, I don't think I underwent a personal journey so much as I really did feel bad for Ishmael. I was like, oh god, oh god, oh god! But you know, it's it didn't take me on a personal journey, it just drove home the point more of this is a bad motherfucker. Right, which to me changes the relationship with the horror movie. Like, you can kind of be with a horror movie killer like Freddy or something because he's got a personality, he's funny, he's got wit, There's there's characteristics that we like. If you say we're not going to make that kind of mo- movie, we're going to make a horrible, nasty, I'm going to show you what death really looks like kind of movie, it is imperative that we have a noble character and someone to like. And this is kind of what we've been getting at our whole podcast, Arnie, about you identifying with the killer, me identifying with the protagonist. I do not identify with Michael in this movie one bit. And the person who I identify with, the person I connect with, and the person who gets top billing is Malcolm McDowell. He's the one who I like in this movie, who has his own sort of pathos. Right, sure. Not, not uh, yeah, a flawed character, certainly, but a noble one. Yes. But you are right in that I think that in the 80s especially, we became too cut 
cuddly with our serial killers, Michael and Jason and Freddy. And in the 90s, they became downright punchlines because they were on Macy's Parade. And now we're getting back to the root of horror, a fear not seen since the original Halloween or even Norman Bates. But I don't get that fear here, though. The problem I have with this is that it stopped being fun for me. And for for this movie, you know, what made the first Halloween so great is the creepiness and the suspense part now is completely gone. And so I hear your point that you have to see the evil by dunking him over and over again. Okay, but it got to a point in that scene where I said, I got this. I see it. And he kept going still. And that's all I'm saying is that, yes, you have to show it over and over again to show what kind of brutal murderer this guy is and how brutal a murderer is for this guy. But it gets to a point where the point is made and he still keeps going. That's all I was saying. I I agree with you on this. And I think it is a challenge of for Halloween 2 is to write what wasn't done in this film, which is that you've asked us to to give consideration to this level of brutality. It's not enough just to show it to us. You have to do something more with it. Perfect example would be, in my estimation, would be Silence of the Lambs, a movie that mm. shows you unrelenting horror, but also has a very noble protagonist and a killer who you want to know what's going on in his mind. This, I just wanted away. Once you allow realism into your genre, when you've taken it, removed from sort of the titillating, scary horror of Carpenter's vision into something grim and unrelenting, you have to change the story itself. And that's what Rob didn't do. He just made an endless series of vile acts. Not scary, not fun, vile. When he gets his outfit, you know, in the first movie, he just kills a random mechanic here. He goes up against Joe Grizzly, who is played by what's his name? He was in Devil's Reach. And before that, he was in the original Dawn of the Dead. Uh, Right. He was. Good on um, it, it, it's it's just a big guy who is uh, basically you had to get a big guy to find somebody who this Michael could steal <laughs> clothes from. And that is a yeah. great scene when you see somebody as big as Michael going toe to toe with Michael in a bathroom stall. But I, I just I love that scene because it's the one time that Michael gets a fight in this. Every other time yep. Michael is dominating. But interesting. I'm glad you said that because I saw no point to that scene and now I can see what they were going for. I had to think about what that scene was in there for. And then once they had the jumpsuit on, I'm like, okay, that was a scene to get him on the jumpsuit. Okay. I I mean, um, I'm not sitting around wondering how Michael gets his clothes. (laughs) I mean, no, but wait a minute. It's the Terminator. It's the beginning of the Terminator movie. Yeah, but exactly. I guess we have so many depraved characters, and and the idea of this is that we're trying to figure out what's going on in his mind. To right. spend time listening to Rush's Tom Sawyer and watching a fight in a truck stop with this cartoonish truck driver, right. I, 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 that, that was the first scene in the movie where I felt like this is really should have been cut. What bugged me about that scene, though, is it felt like we were still in the 70s because they were listening to Rush, and this guy had the sideburns. I'm like, they, sh- they should have brought us into the modern era where every other character after he breaks out is you know they should have been listening to maybe some rob zombie music or something instead of listening to rush and and you know i like the scene i thought it was fun to watch that one scene i actually did have a good time watching that scene. yeah i I like it because it it, again it gives michael a chance to struggle against somebody who's more well-armed and equally strong and shows that insanity beats brawn i was liking the fact and that's the only scene where they tip off the fact that michael is not driving a vehicle 
that was one thing that always bothered me about the first one. And every time he appeared in a car, I was like, he was a child. He never drove. They didn't even let him have driving video games. So that was, I, I think I would have been better never having seen that scene and not knowing that he got in a truck um, and drove it away. He did not drive the truck away. He walked. Okay. All right. uh, it, it was 100 but, miles to this. Then they drop it was 100 miles. Yeah, but Rob Zombie specifically said that Michael doesn't know how to drive. Okay, okay, yeah, I appreciated that, and I okay. Then I misunderstood some of what was going on in that scene. But he was merely getting a jumpsuit. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. And I love, well. and I love. He goes back home, and his mask and knife are just where I left them. And he gets his stuff. I guess he grew into the mask now, and it's. I love how it's a little bit decomposed because it's so old in the in the basement, uh, the floorboards of the house. So that you know, going back to the house for his mask. But he had the foresight to put it under floorboards in the basement. You know, I hear. I you. mean, that was smart of him to know that someday I'm going to come back for this mask. And I thought the aged mask was nice and creepy too. I love the brown yeah. lines in it and the decomposition. It makes it uh, makes a strong mask even scarier. Yeah, yes. you know what? I'll say this on the Friday the Thirteenth remake. We spent a good deal of time debating about whether it was effective in the scene that Jason got the hockey mask, and my, my argument was that it just felt like it was kind of there. This felt earned. I, you know, it's an indulgence certainly, but the idea that this mask was initially brought into his life because his sister's boyfriend wore it while he was having sex with her. And that you bring in all of those connotative ideas about his burgeoning sexuality and how he felt towards his sister, possibly incest, and then his anger towards her, and known that, and then have it underneath the floorboards, him pulling out again, returning to get his younger sister. I thought all of that worked. I was with it in that moment. I totally accepted it, even though I understood that it probably wouldn't have happened that way. Okay, so the movie, once it gets into the remake of Halloween. Yeah, I think we can skip a large part of summarizing the second half, because it really is just like watching the first movie on Fast Forward. Like a greatest hits. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. So Lori drops off the key or something to the house, whatever. She drops off the envelope. That's like in the first movie to the mm-hmm. Myers house. Michael sees Lori. Now, he sniffs the envelope. And somehow, later on in the movie, he doesn't kill her and pulls out the picture showing that I know who you are. And you were related, trying to communicate with her. How on earth did he know that she is the baby? There's no way that he figures that out that we see on screen. You can't tell me it's just the smell because I don't buy that because this movie doesn't have that kind of stuff going on. So I don't understand how he recognized that was his sister. And I, I was, I was going to ask you two, how on earth did he figure that out? I think the movie has a weird Freudian subtext about how he personally identifies with that baby, that he identifies with the helplessness of that baby and that that baby is never going to hurt him. And, you know, he can murder everyone else in his family and then sit down and cuddle with that baby. Yes. I think we're supposed to accept the fact that he can just know it's her, which is swimming up current against the idea that we're going to do a realistic Halloween. Yes, that is. is something that it's like, mm, now we're now you're entering in metaphorical and supernatural and that doesn't work but and i think we are supposed to accept the fact that he can just know that 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 he's related to her and that that there that he just knows in their blood that they they have this connection and if they had that and that was true and that's great i need to see something that tells me that because at the end of the movie when he tries to connect with her and clearly she doesn't want that it doesn't make a lot of sense to me because it, how does he know it's her 
he gets out and he goes and he kills Laurie Strode's foster parents. And they are just having a standard evening at home, lighting a fire, decorating for Halloween. And he breaks in and he kills them. It's like it could happen to me. And I find that to be disconcerting. And I find nothing scarier than an actual just crazed motherfucker with a knife. Because a guy haunting me in my dreams, ooh, or if I happen to go to his camp, ooh. But somebody coming into my house with a weapon is real. And to see it happen like that... Is frightening and I found it to be horrifying and the thing is I just perhaps I again this goes back to what I said before about the sophistication I've seen the bloodless death so many times that these days those movies are PG-13 and to get a kind of visceral reaction from me a kind of revulsion and a kind of fear requires this level of brutality in the 21st century and zombie nailed well I gotta say you brought up the parents death that scene also got to me in the less is more would have been much more effective there he pops up after Lori leaves and the parents are there and he captures the dad and brings him in the house the door slams and the camera lingers for a couple of seconds on the door but then for some reason we go in the house and we see murders we see d wallace getting killed well wouldn't it have been much more effective much more creepy much more suspenseful much more scary to have the door close and then cut back to what Lori's doing because when they call the house later on when lewis calls the house over the answering machine when they're trying to pick up pick up the phone then you see the shots of their dead bodies if you didn't see the murders there it actually would have heightened the suspense would have heightened the, the mystery would have actually got me more into the movie but instead he had to show it to me and then later on when the entry machine came he had to show it to me again when we once we got into the remake of halloween what made halloween so great is exactly what you just said arnie this could actually happen and you break into the house that's all you needed at that point. I, I think that's the difference between a suspense movie and a horror movie is a suspense movie doesn't go in a door and a horror movie does. And a horror movie should have some action to it. And just seeing the dead bodies later, you know, that, that may have a jump feel to it, but it's not nearly as scary as seeing them killed. But you don't have to show every murder. I agree with you. You have to show some murders in a horror movie. That's the whole point. But you don't have to show every single one. You, you know, in the original Halloween movies, we didn't see every single one. We got to see the murder of the best friend with the glasses and the ghost thing that's a great murder that's those that's what you want to see right but you don't have to see these two because you get the point i'm going to go on a weird tant metaphorical tangent here uh, indulge me i said i'm going to take you out to lunch and we sit down at a fast food restaurant and uh, and we eat burgers eat it and you enjoy it and yeah that was good if i said i'm going to show you how you got this and before i took you into lunch and we go to the slaughterhouse and we see the animals being eviscerated and then we sit down and eat it you're not going to enjoy the meal the same way even though it is the same meal <laughs> and tastes the same and that is how i feel about this movie once you have asked me to really look at the brutality of the murders and to consider the murders with every skull crushing artery blasting realism it is not going to be a fun movie it is going to be a challenging movie it's going to be a provocative movie and my position towards it changes entirely i can no longer say this is a good time. I'm now invested in a different way and it can still work, but I need another component that zombie up to this point, And I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say, maybe he'll fix it in two does not provide. 
the thing is, by doing this and making him so ruthless and making us watch this so often, I had zero doubt that he would kill Laurie if given the chance. And then when later on he captures her and he doesn't, it makes it all the more interesting. Well, why did he not kill her? He killed everybody else. Why not her? I agree. So then, yeah, you have the basic remake and you get the death of Linda and her boyfriend Bob, which is straight out of the first one with the ghost scene. Only now, instead of fucking in the neighbor's house, they're actually fucking in the Myers house. But I don't get it because Bob has a van. Why did he need a house? (laughs) That was the whole point of a van in high school, wasn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I think the point was that, you know, nothing says sex to me like going into an old house and having it there. They had the same issue in the last movie, Resurrection, when they all in this Michael Myers house and the two kids thought, you know, it's a dilapidated house. Let's have sex. Same thing. But here you had them in the house. They actually got them in the house, which makes sense for them to die because they're in Michael's home and Michael's there. So that whole section was, you know, you got to see your murders. That's what I want to see. Those murders I want to see in this Halloween. And I like the fact that, you know, they didn't take too many lines straight from the original. They took a couple out, mostly Mm -hmm. for Loomis. But I do like when she again pulls down the top and see anything you like right out of the first one. It was a great callback. The whole thing, I mean, that is one of the iconic kills in the first Halloween is when he's in that ghost suit. And so to do it again, the ghost suit and the glasses, you needed it for this one. I liked it. You had to do it, but I wouldn't say I liked it. I wouldn't say I liked much about the second half of the movie, actually. The creativity that had gone into the whole thrust of what had been in the first half of the movie now felt like, oh, and we have to do all of this. And it felt very much like someone handing in a term paper that he wrote a couple hours ago. You know, it's like, all right, and I got to do this scene and this scene and this scene and this scene. All right, till he gets to the end. Well, Stuart, could it be that this was the first movie from the Michael's point of view? It is. Right. So maybe that's why you had to feel like you had to hit all the beats from the first movie and the murder sections. Why it's, as you guys said, fast forwarded because you were supposed to see it, you know, the first movie from someone else's point of view, kind of like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, maybe. Maybe I'm giving him too much credit for that. I don't think it totally worked, but that's the impression I got why it was going on super speed, which is why Laurie is such a non-character as compared to the first movie with Jamie Lee Curtis. Completely. And so because we're not dealing with Laurie's story, we're dealing with Michael's story, as you keep saying about it. Yeah the first movie. So that's what I got from it. And I didn't care. I mean, I I wanted to see, I wanted to see, I'm really glad they brought that killing with the glasses with the ghosts. But since I didn't care about Laurie at all, I didn't care about those scenes, you know? So that was a real difference. It's it's the the striking difference between the, the two movies. And I've already admitted my bias. I, I want to know what's going on with the victim. I wanted more of Loomis having a point to do, uh, which he did in the first half and not in the second. And Laurie, the idea that we're going to try and find out why, what makes Michael tick instantly is less interesting to me. I'm not compelled to read about serial killers and know what's going on in their mind. And I didn't really want that movie. I thought he hinted at that in the first half. And in the second half, it's not even relevant. In the first movie, what made the first Halloween so much fun with the shots, they had these lingering shots from the point of view of the serial killer guy looking at Laurie Strode and his friends walking, looking through the windows. So now this movie in the second half to me was the first movie, again, told, but more from Michael's perspective of how it went down in his mind. But then wouldn't we still have those lingering shots? Wouldn't you want to bring those back in? Because again, with the whole idea of setting up some suspense and some mystery and some scariness and chilliness, since that was so missing, if he did that and took the time to do that, instead of showing me D. Wallace's death, the way I said before, and you know, when you had Daniel Harris saying the same thing, he dragged her back in the house, the door closed, the camera lingered. And then later in the movie, Laurie finds her on the ground dying, bloody. You could have left 
it with the door closing because Lori finds her later, it would have been even more creepy because then it leaves you hanging. Oh my God, what happened to her? What happened to her? Even though we know she died, we, we don't get to see it yet. We get to see it later. It adds some suspense and mystery to the whole shebang. And I think that I need to speak up here as the fan of horror in general, which is we enjoy seeing the, is this the moment where he kills her? Is this the moment where he kills her? Is this the yes. moment where he kills her? And that is fun for a horror fan. And that's why you put it there. We don't want to see a bloodless, nonviolent horror movie. We don't want our PG-13 horror movies. Look at PG-13 horror movies. It doesn't work. It's not what we want. I think you're missing my point, though. No, what you said, though, is you just want all the suspense. But the thing is, the reason we go in that house and we see the stabbing, and first of all, the character of Annie doesn't die. She lives. Yes. And the whole thing, we think she's going to die. She's certainly outmatched. And, you know, I think that was a hugely brutal death. The fact that Rob Zombie didn't even let her put a shirt on and she's bloody and half naked and crawling and being dragged along the floor and you can just hear the skin against the wood. Oh my God, that was painful to watch. It was horrible. It is an agonizing scene. I think actually it's it's one of the more effective in the second half. The way that they set up the fact that Michael is behind the door in the front when she comes Mm. in and discovers her and then it sort of slowly... That is the best scene in my opinion in the remake of the the original movie itself, not yes. the early scenes that Zombie has added. It's terrifying. That is it. That is the only time that I can say that I felt frightened by what I was watching. I think what Brock and I are both saying is that I don't get a lot out of watching gratuitous violence. I like implied violence, I, and I like the suspense of it, and I definitely think you can make the case, Arnie, that there are many great suspense movies that don't rely on gore. But there's a difference between suspense and horror. This is not a suspense film. Okay, I agree. But, you can, but you need to pepper it in a little bit to constantly show the horror 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 i think it'd be a stronger horror movie if sometimes it's implied and sometimes we want to see the murders i'm not disagreeing with you but it was implied when he escaped when he escaped the sanitarium it was implied we didn't see all the deaths we just come back and see all the cars they cut them they cut them they actually filmed them (laughs) you can see it in the cut scenes there is not one death that rob zombie didn't consider every broken bone and blood vessel for what made the first movie so great was he had a combination of both and and it was so much fun to take that journey of that movie and here we just don't have that same sort of suspense going on at all and it would have benefited from a little bit of it just a little bit I can only imagine it was an artistic choice I don't think Rob Zombie's a fool I think he knew this I agree and I think he said I want a grit I I mean it's what he does it's kind of why I didn't connect with those other two movies that he made it was that he just likes to indulge that level of depravity He's fascinated by watching depraved people do awful things. And I I don't need to eat the whole bowl. You know what I mean? I It's just a personal taste. I don't want all that. He made yeah, the I, Halloween movie that he wanted to make. I don't know that I wanted it, but I think that it was well made. I completely agree. I suppose we should talk about the, the, the major difference of the second half and the original movie is the fact that Michael does actually obtain Lori. And rather than it being about sticking a knife in her, he wants to relate to her and relate to her in the way that he did to the baby in the early scenes of the movie. And there's a nice bookend quality to the way the first half and the second half complement each other. What did you guys think about that? 
I, I found it all to be very weird and kind of incestual, sexual kind of way. Because you got Lori there, who is by no means the virgin she was in the first one. She's, you know, sticking her finger through a bagel and all that. <laughs> and, you know, when you see him take her down there and you think he stuck something into everyone else. And remember, he was touching his earlier sister, who we already said looks a lot like Lori, which could be how Michael knew her, by the way. There's there's a strong resemblance. Strong. And I really did have to look it up and see it was two different actresses. And I really kind of felt like I didn't know what was happening. I, I mean, it could have been a druid cult. It could have been a <laughs> rape. It could have been a murder. I was just, uh, 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 you want suspense. That was me the first time seeing this movie is what the fuck is he doing? Yeah. But I mean, I think, I mean, it makes sense. I think when he takes off his mask and he's kneeling in front of me, to me, the mystery of it uh, was revealed at that point that he wanted to relate to her, that he mm-hmm. wanted as a sister and, and, and in that relationship that they had as a child that it was he had regressed in that moment he was tired of being the killer and he just wanted love and he says in i don't know if this was only in the uncut version because i know they added some sanitarium scenes but he says when he puts on the mask he can you know block himself from himself and when he takes off the masks he faces reality so by taking off the mask with her he is trying to be human i think and that is right right i I think it's almost a little over explaining a little too much for it for my taste. I mean, I think, and I think Zombie knows that too, which is why some of those scenes you say were cut, is that he didn't want it to be too too much of a deconstruction. It doesn't work if you explain him away too much. Michael is always best left with a sense of ambiguity but i actually feel like that scene was really effective in the way that he allows his guard to come down and what does she do what any of us would have done in that moment try to get away by stabbing him and and running for the door and it's what turns him back and completely back into the brutal killer and what he wants to kill her at that point is that the impression after that after she stabs absolutely after that point she's no longer the baby to him she's no longer the defenseless object of of love and need he, she is just like all the others. Just exactly. like the older sister. Exactly. Right. So we all saw and that I, 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 think, I think that was a dissatisfying artistic choice. I mean, I think that was that was right. I would, I would argue that I feel like the climax of the movie itself was a little, I don't know, protracted? Did, did, did it go on a little long for you guys? Yeah, yeah, it did. For me, I was like, all right, all right. She's in the rafters here. It just, <laughs> I was over it. After that scene transpired in the basement, I really only needed about five more minutes before credits roll. And I think there's like 15. Yeah. Now, again, in our cut, we can see that Loomis doesn't die. In your cut, which is what I saw in theaters, it appears like he crushes Loomis's eyes out, which is great because the book was called The Devil's Eyes and he gouges Loomis's eyes out and just drops him on the ground, presumably dead. And he's totally referencing Blade Runner. But anyway. Yeah, I thought he did die, Arnie. When he popped up later, I'm like, wait a minute, didn't his eyes get poked out? He can actually see. And then did he die again? No, he was just left there. Michael just shirked him off and left okay. him there. Because then, yeah, it leaves it open for him to come back if they want him to. But I, I thought he had died from his injuries. So did I. And I, when I first saw it in theaters walking out, I'm like, Malcolm McDowell was the best thing about this movie. And I know they're going to make a sequel because it was the most successful Halloween out of all of them. And I want Malcolm back. But it appears that he's dead. But you can always bring back whoever you want to pretty much, except perhaps Laurie's parents. But weren't they getting away from that? I mean, I want to throw this out there. I got the impression that they 
were trying to present Michael as he could be a living, breathing human being. That although he had this rage in him, it was explainable by psychology that he was not the shape of pure evil and not, and he was not indestructible. He was a big guy and hard to take down, but that he was very much human and could be taken down. There wasn't a whole lot of people stabbing and setting him on fire and doing things that would kill human beings to him. For the most part, he goes unchallenged. That is true. Which is why I'm wondering, how do you go, how do you keep that approach after Laurie at point blank range shoots him in the face? We never see where the bullet goes in that defense. Uh, it, maybe it was the face. It was certainly someplace bloody, but yeah. y- you don't know that she blew his head off. And obviously he is coming back. Right. But yeah. It, it is mentioned, though, this is the first movie to actually use in dialogue the shape because Loomis does say inside the mask, there's nothing. He's just a shape of a human being. Right. So, you know, yes. that is referenced there that he is truly still just the shape. As much as it tries to be from Michael Myers' point of view, I think Zombie failed in doing that because Michael Myers' point of view is unrelatable. It is. Yes. He is not yes. a human. So therefore, you can't present it from inhuman eyes it would be like uh, a human trying to make a movie as seen by an alien you can't do it but we've we've seen that done before with batman with james bond i mean i feel like it can be done but you, what we're trying yeah what you're asking people to do is in mass relate to someone who becomes sociopathic yeah i mean everybody can sit around and go i want to be james bond and drive the z3 and wear the tux and i want right. to be batman and have the <laughs> gadgets but if you're watching this movie and you're going home going i want to be michael myers and fuck up my sister there's something wrong with you and get help please yeah. seriously yeah <laughs> it doesn't entertain that kind of and and some more movies do entertain the fantasy that you could be the killer i think oh, child's yeah. play child's play is a perfect example of a movie that is beloved by children because it's this little thing that takes down all the adults and i used to love freddy krueger in that way you know you could relate to him i'd, I'd cost him as freddy krueger you know there, that's, there's a different thing there going on though because it's 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 more comic and more soft this is hard this is like wanting to be one of the rapists from the accused you know i mean you it's just Yikes. horrible and what i would argue and I think it's what I've been arguing is if I will go there and I accept that and I like that if you make it worthwhile. If you just do it to do it, I'm sort of annoyed. You violated me. If you've done it but you've created a character that I can empathize with and a reason for taking that journey, I'll go with you on it. But for me, the struggle with Halloween that's still unfolding, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's not done yet, there's still part two, is that I don't really know why I needed a more gratuitous portrait of what I enjoyed in the first movie. And, and you referenced Child's Play several times. You know Chucky was in this movie. The guy who plays Annie's dad, Sheriff Brackett, mm-hmm. is the voice of Chucky. Yeah, that's true. There's there's so many of those references, and which is why I equate Zombie to Tarantino. Is He knows horror movies. He knows every damn one of them. And he's filled this cast with just wonderful little character actors who you always love to see. Clint Howard. And, and they're in there. I mean, the fact that he brought Danielle Harris back, the uh, victim of four yep. and five, for a supporting role, just shows that he's paying attention and he knows how to do a good horror movie. He is impelled by forces. 
forces within himself, though, to not go after the suspense, but but stay close to the visceral horror. Brock, you just watched House of a Thousand Corpses with me not too long ago. Was it me or was little Tommy Doyle dressed up just like Otis from the first movie during the ceremonial scene with the red outfit and the white face paint? I'm going to say it was you because I didn't catch it. Little Tommy? Little Tommy yeah. when he's in his Halloween costume. I what think was his costume? I can't remember what it was. It was the white face paint and he has the teeth painted over his lips like a skeleton. <laughs> Right, and the, right, you're probably right, right. right. And I that's think that's exactly how Otis was when they're taking the girl and the guy down to meet Dr. Satan. Otis was in that same face paint. I thought that was a kind of a oh. nice, subtle reference there. I love the, the makeup work on him, but I didn't catch the reference. I don't know, but I'll tell you what, even more upsetting to me was Le- Michael Myers' clown get up in the beginning. That is, I don't know how they've done it, but that is the creepiest clown mask ever. <laughs> so, Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend the 2007 version of Halloween? Stuart. <sighs> Take a breath. Um, you know, the first time I saw it, I rejected it. I said, you know, and I, I, like I said, I saw it with my mother. I saw it wanting to see another movie that was playing afterwards. I didn't really have any expectation for it. And I would have said no if he had asked me in 2007. Having taken a couple years off, having seen it again, seeing clearly how in control Zombie is of his creation, it is very much a, a vision that is worth taking a look at. I personally don't need it, but I think it's worth seeing, if only to uh, strengthen my own feelings as to why I prefer the original. So that's a very qualified, very esoteric yes on my part. Mm. Arnie. Absolutely, I recommend this film. Out of all nine Halloween films we've seen, this is the one that I have the best experience watching. I have, this is a brutal movie. It's not for everyone. And, you know, if you're the kind of person who doesn't like horror, this is not the movie that's going to win you over. (laughs) But if you do like horror movies, this is one of the best ones made in recent years. And I've seen a lot. And this is one of the ones that is up there that is going to stick with me because it made an impact. I walked out of that theater and I was disturbed and I was not scared per se, but horrified in a way. And this was only my second time watching it was for this. I bought it right when it came out on Blu-ray, but I didn't watch it. I I just didn't get to it until now. And watching it again, going in with the perspective I had of having seen it once already, it's still a very disturbing movie and yet very satisfying. Again, I'm going to say in a 21st century way, as far as horror goes, it is an ultimately satisfying ride for those who like a good night of scares and blood and I think that every piece of it worked from the 70s grit all the way through there were some choices he made that were I making it I wouldn't have made I don't think I would have put you know basically they were one step away from a meth lab in the Myers house in the 70s and I think I don't know if that's the right choice for Michael Myers but these were the choices he made and I had a good time watching it both times yes yes a million times yes and I can't wait for the fucking sequel. And, you know, I said this during House for a Thousand Corpses. I have respect for Rob Zombie as a director. The guy has a vision. The guy came in this with an idea. And, you know, when you're doing remakes, when we talked about a Friday the 13th, that clearly wasn't there. And so to have it here, you know, deserves full marks. As a viewer, I disagree with some of his choices. And it was hard for me to really get behind all of it. That being said, there's a lot of good stuff here. And it's if you have seen the rest of the Halloween movies, you have to watch this. I mean, you have to. What 
Would I recommend this to people on the street that I don't know? Probably not. I do think there is a lot of good stuff here. If you watch horror movies, I, re- I totally re- recommend you watch this. It's not the same kind of conditional review I gave for House of a Thousand Corpses because I think if you watch the Halloween movies, you have to watch this movie. And you can make your own opinion on whether or not you want to see you know, what he shows you. But I do, think, I, I do think that for all the great stuff Rob Zombie does, that he constantly keeps going too far is is I'm curious why he keeps doing it and you know that's his style and that's what he does I don't like that so I can't recommend that so it is a recommend you should watch it you really should especially you've seen the first one and make your own decision if you like this or not personally I only like parts of it and I really wish he did things differently so that's that you know what it is I'm just going to interject one more time I have the same feeling about Tarantino I want to love him but he is his own worst enemy. He doesn't want me to love him. <laughs> and he just keeps pushing me away. Yeah, that is true. There's an overindulgence factor that is relevant in all of Zombie's work. And I think it works a little better in House of a Thousand Corpses than here, because in House of a Thousand Corpses, you're in Zombie's carnival. But mm-hmm. in Devil's Rejects in here, he's trying to invade your world and it doesn't work quite as well. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt. I really feel like I think he's mentioned in press material that he saw Halloween two as the second part of the same story and not just attacked on let's make money sequel I'm willing to go there. I am much more excited about it now than when we first started this because I'm like, oh, I didn't really care for that Halloween remake. But now I'm, let's see him get to a point. He got I, us I halfway say- there. I was dangling. I'd like to, for him to finish the conversation. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me. This was a very interesting discussion. If you enjoy listening to our podcast today, please go to our website, www.nowplayingpodcast.com and download the other movies in the Halloween franchise we've talked about. You can find our House of a Thousand Corpses, uh, two episodes there. You could find Star Trek, Terminator, Friday the 13th, all the other ones at nowplayingpodcast.com. You can find a link to our forums where you can discuss this review and others with other people like yourselves who are listening to us. If you liked what you heard today, please leave a review for us on iTunes. If you didn't like it, don't. (laughs) And we hope you will join us for our next episode, the last one in this series, the Halloween 2 remake by Rob Zombie. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye. What's the boogeyman? As a matter of fact, it was. Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Halloween Retrospective. It's all over, my friend. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can listen to our other installments, as well as our Friday the 13th, House of a Thousand Corpses, Terminator, and Star Trek Retrospective series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production and is not affiliated with Compass International, Universal Pictures, Galaxy International Pictures, Dimension Films, Miramax Films, or The Weinstein Company. Michael Myers and all other Halloween characters and situations are copyright and trademarks of those companies and no infringement is intended. Going toe to toe with Michael in a bathroom stall. I felt bad for the guy though because he doesn't get to wipe before he dies. Yeah, <laughs> but, I know that's a I weird thing, thought. but it's like. And then he puts the jumpsuit on. Yeah, the the, the hygiene in this movie is upsetting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but he doesn't take the long underwear. So the shit we have to assume is on the long underwear. Michael didn't take shit stained trousers. He left. I wasn't sure. I mean, that's <laughs> funny.